If a player cleans his ball during play of a hole, except on the putting green, he shall incur a penalty of one stroke. That's a rule, Jerry. But it's just a friendly game. Why do you always have to be such a stickler? Because that's the way I was raised. Welcome to Spirit of the Game, brought to you by the Colorado Golf Association. Here are your hosts, Ed Mate and Lewis Harry. Okay, welcome back to Spirit of the Game, CGA's Rules Podcast with Lewis Harry. And Ed Mate. I, a little weird leading off here, usually the one to kind of open the podcast. So. This is all about you today. This is about, you're the guy who spent, you ever figured out exactly how many hours you spend on a golf course annually? Like the number of hours. Well, I mean, our, our activity tracker probably does a good job of showing yeah. that. But yeah, yeah, I mean, who knows? It's, it's higher than I can count. Yeah. So that's where the rule, that's where the fun happens. That's where the action is. I'm, I'm sitting here in the office most of the time while you're out there making rulings, or at least in a position to make rulings. It is amazing to me, you know, how much time, how little time we actually spend conducting tournaments dealing with the rules of golf, specifically, like in the book with a decision or an interpretation and having to, you know, come to a conclusion and, and how, what we're actually doing when we're out there, which is everything but. So. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause we spend so much time studying it, devoting, you know, learning that knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure out, you know, what all the intricacies of the rules. And then it occupies such a small amount of time running a golf tournament. Yeah. It's, it's, but when that moment comes up, yeah. That's kind of when you snap into it. And yeah, that's when the fun starts. Action, so. Exactly. So we're, today we're going to recap kind of some highlights or some ones that stood out for you this year. So, we had a couple. Um, yeah. Of course, there's a lot of opportunity within end of April, start of May to the start of October. A lot of stuff mm-hmm. happens between that time period. So, yeah, we had a couple. Picked out five that were really notable this year. And that but, are, Yeah, so before you get to your list, just um, – because not everybody listening plays in our tournaments. One of the things we started doing, it's now been quite a while, we, we list a phone number on the scorecard, and that's your cell phone or Kate's cell phone, whoever the tournament director is, with any rules questions. Um, it used to be that we would just say, please play two balls if you have a doubtful situation arise. Now we just say, call that number. How, on a given tournament, how many times does that phone ring with a question? I think it depends on what the tournament is. You know, if if it's a one-day CGA qualifier, it could ring anywhere from two to ten times. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on the depending on the quality of player we have in the field, I think is a big contributor mm-hmm. to that. How much we get calls for rules, but uh, if it's a match play tournament, we could go four days without hearing anyone call in because yeah, it's match play. You and your opponent have to figure it out. Yeah, so. Yeah, uh, we still do put the procedure for playing two golf balls on the back of our stroke play scorecards, Rule Twenty Point One C Three. So it's still there if the player actually reads that far down the back of their scorecard, <laughs> which they don't. So when when you do get a call, are you usually able to resolve it right over the phone, uh, or is it usually, or does it sometimes require? Well, I'll tell you what, play a second ball, and I'll have to deal with it later. I think for a lot of standard stuff, we can figure it out. We can walk through it over the phone. Yeah. You know, if it's a simple dropping from a penalty area procedure or if they just have a question about, you know, hey, my golf ball moved or something like that, we can figure it out over the phone. Now, there's times where a player says, hey, I'd rather, I would rather someone come over here and mm-hmm. check this out. Mm-hmm. 
then it's kind of, hey, we need to get someone in that area. Right, but. right. Well, I think it's been a great modernization of our of our procedures. It's really helped a lot um, and I think has uh, hopefully helped our pace of play. So of those calls, we got a few that uh, maybe didn't start out as a phone call, but at least ended up on your list. Well, there was a couple. Like I said, we picked out five that were notable. And when I say notable, they're either notable for what the rule was, maybe it's something that just doesn't come up often, you know, or it was notable because it had implications on what happened to that player. Right. Which in two of these cases, that's what we'll see. So, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and go down the list. And, and by the way, no, and by the way, the names have either been redacted or, or, or changed to protect the innocent or to protect the guilty, I guess. <laughs> yeah, this is in no particular order of, you know, severe to you yeah. know, whatever. But. Well, these players, if they were listening, know that they'll know that, it, oh, yeah, that was I me. I think if <laughs> someone is interested enough to do the research into each of these events, they possibly could figure out. Okay. Who the player was. They, they could they could track the breadcrumbs back to okay. where it was. Okay. Very good. There's they, a challenge for you. Yeah. yeah. If you're so interested in yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh, so our first one happened early in the year. Uh, Walnut Creek U.S. Open local qualifier. This was on May 11th. Okay. Uh, possibly the wettest day of the oh, 2023 yes. season. Oh, yes. Now I remember. And cold. Cold, wet. Um, yeah, and you had, a, you had a suspension for unplayable conditions and squeegeeing or it we wasn't. Did. Yeah. We, yeah. We never had a suspension for dangerous play. The greens ended up flooding at one point, suspended for an unplayable golf course. Um, got... Squeegee's out. Actually, I went out there with my myself with a flipped bunker rake to okay. squeegee greens and tees. Yeah, because we didn't have enough squeegees to go around, so right. I just took a flipped uh, took a bunker rake, flipped it around. Yeah, squeegee the green that way. So, yeah. but yeah, very very wet, soggy day, cold. Never stopped raining. Uh, if anyone plays Common Ground, you'll note this was the start yeah. of Common Ground being underwater for a couple of weeks, 13, yeah. 14 days, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. So May 11th, Walnut Creek U.S. Open qualifier. Um, player approaches one of our, our field members on his third or fourth hole, asks a question about a, uh, an equipment question, mm-hmm. and played three or four holes to this point, started on 10. I think they approached one of our rules officials out on 13 or 14, whatever this was. But I had a question about uh, the status of something on his driver. Now, I didn't get a lot of information from our, you know, over the phone originally or over the radio, I should say. And when I approached this player, I asked him, hey, you know, heard you had a question about your driver. Pulls the head cover off his driver, shows me the face, and lo and behold, there's three white dots sitting on the face of his driver. And if anyone's been around golf in the last 10 years, you would probably instantly recognize what these dots are. And what they are, if you you don't know what I'm referring to, is they're reflective adhesive dots placed on a driver face so a launch monitor is able to pick up that club Mm -hmm. so you can gather data from a launch monitor. Unfortunately for this player, leaving those dots on the face of that driver presents quite a bit of an issue if you make a stroke with that club in a round. Mm -hmm. Now, just having the dots on the face isn't the issue in itself because you can carry a club with those dots on there. When you make a stroke with those dots on the face, that's when our, our issue pops up. So ask the player, Hey, you know, have you used this club in this round? He said, yes, I've used it on every hole I've played so far. Does that count? (laughs) (laughs) 
And unfortunately for this player, that resulted in a disqualification. You know, with those dots being on the face of the driver, turns that driver into a non-conforming club, unfortunately. It's a breach of, uh, you'd actually have to dive into the equipment rules Mm -hmm. to figure this out. Uh, Once you dive into the equipment rules, you'll note that uh, attachments to the club face are not permitted, thus turning that club into a non-conforming club. Stroke of the non-conforming club, unfortunately, is a DQ. So you said attachments to the face, to the head of the club, is a, is a, is a non-conforming. If, so if it was just a, a black Sharpie mark that he put there to remind him of something, is that also, would that qualify, or is it actually like it's a label of some sort, so it actually is, has dimensions? Well, it's, to- it's really anything that goes. The face, if you want to think of the club head, you can do certain things to the club head. Uh, as we all know, lead tape is a common mm-hmm. It's a common attachment, if we want to call it an attachment, to a club head. Mm-hmm. The face of the club, however, is kind of a a no go zone. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to. We have to leave that face alone. Mm-hmm. If you remember, Hideki Matsuyama got in trouble. Yeah, that, with and, some paint fill on yeah, three wood. I remember that. Um, and that's kind of the same. Was he disqualified? He was disqualified yeah. for that one. Yep. Yeah. So did you know immediately that that was a DQ? As soon as I saw the dry, the dots on the face, yeah. and as soon as I confirmed with the player that that club he, had been used he, to make a stroke. Yeah. Actually, I think what I told him was, I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is you're going to get out of the rain. <laughs> <laughs> the bad news is you're going to be disqualified. How did he react? He I uh, he was he seemed to be a bit bummed. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a purely self-inflicted yeah. penalty. And it's just, it's a matter of just really not understanding what you so, can and can't do. So if I'm listening to this, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. The, the, the guy had dots on the face of his club and he's disqualified. That seems like a death penalty for jaywalking. What, what, no harm, no foul. That's silly. That's why the rules are stupid. And, you know, but it, it, you can, I'm sure appreciate somebody who brought that. So what would be your answer to that criticism. Well, again, it goes back to the faces and this goes kind of goes along with blurred lines a little bit with, and I hate to leak this over into the, the what is, what is not a divot conversation. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about attaching things or putting things on the face of a club, it's, it's done with the intention to limit what can be done to influence the flight of the golf ball. And you could make the argument that a you know a half centimeter dot way out on the toe has nothing to do to influence the flight of the golf ball, but it's easier for the governing bodies just to draw the line of nothing on the face. Mm-hmm. Right? We're not going to get into the gray areas of well, can this influence the flight of a golf ball off the face? Can this not influence it? Mm-hmm. So it's really about just drawing a, a clear, distinct line about hey, we're not going to the, the face is off limits. Mm-hmm. You can't attach anything. You can't put anything on there. You got to leave the face alone. And that's yeah, really what I, it comes down to. Yeah, I like that uh, clarification or that emphasis on the face. Kind of reminds me of you're, you're allowed to repair um, your line of putt now. You're allowed to repair damage. You're allowed to repair ball marks and all these things. But you really should be careful when you get to the hole. Because when you start messing with the circumference of the hole – now you're really touching something you shouldn't be touching. So I like that distinction because I just think of it more as the, the the head itself rather than the face. So I think that helps me understand a little bit better 
why that's so sacred. You know, um, I know that the markings of a driver face are in the grooves on the club. I mean, those are something that's legislated in a very meticulous way. So anything that alters them or messes with them, you know, other than through wear, normal use. Um, but, you know, that makes sense. So I liked your answer, though. It was probably... <laughs> I had a similar situation, disqualified. Well, I didn't disqualify him. I wish I, I wish I had, or I wish I could have. I wish his breach warranted it. Got a four-stroke penalty at Lake Valley in a, a, a player ability test on a day where the wind was blowing 70 miles an hour. And I, you know, it was almost, I'm exaggerating, it wasn't 70, but it was pretty awful. And nobody qualified that day. And I wish I would have been able to say, the good news, the bad news is you're disqualified. The good news is you're out of the wind. So, all right, what's next? Okay, so next it would be we're going to match play at this point. Uh, our super senior match play. Uh, we had a, a situation, and th- this reminded me very, very similar to a situation that happened at the U.S. Amateur Band Dunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that 2019, 20, somewhere in there? A couple of years ago. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. I don't have them memorized. It's okay. I, I don't either. But I do know the ones that were at Cherry Hills. Those ones I remember. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> So it reminded me of a situation at the U.S. Amateur Band, and, and we'll, we'll throw the clock back here for a second. At that U.S. Amateur, there was a situation where— Just to be clear, is this pre-2019 or post-2019? That's important. This is post-2019. So That's 20... why I said it was either 19 or 20, okay. whatever, whatever okay. U.S. Amateur So the new Amateur rules, quote-unquote, are in effect. Okay. The rules we're using today yeah. apply to this situation. Okay. But a player is using a club caddy. Last hole of the match, match is tied. And club caddy hops in the bunker, reaches down. Oh, yeah, I remember this now. Grabs yeah. some sand, runs it through his fingers. Yep. And then tosses it yeah. aside. Yeah. So, unfortunately, you know. Yeah. The caddy acting in this situation is be treated as if the player did it themselves. Right. Testing the sand, breach of rule 12. Right. get a loss of hole penalty. The match was tied at that point. Player loses the 18th hole on mm. something, mm-hmm. you know, really really kind of inexcusable mm-hmm. in my opinion. But mm-hmm. anyways, it, the, the only reason I bring that up is because in, in this situation, we had a, a match in our super senior match play match was tied 18th hole. So pretty pivotal point in the match. Mm-hmm. One of the compet by the way, this is a Willis case mm-hmm. golf course in Denver, one of the city of Denver courses. If mm-hmm. anyone knows the 18th hole at Willis case, mm-hmm. uphill par four, uphill par four, very easy to go left in the rough mm-hmm. off that tee. So player over there looking left rough, finds a ball, thinks it's theirs, hits that ball, mm-hmm. gets on the green, thinks they're in a really good position to possibly have a chance to win this match. Gets up to the green, is about to mark their ball, marks it, lifts it, realizes that wasn't their ball they just mm-hmm. hit. Now, what round was that in? That was at the, this was, That wasn't the final. That's not how the match was decided. No, yeah. this was day three of pod tournament. play. Okay, yeah. So it's yeah. I, I'm struggling to remember if that match really affected how the pod shook out. Right. It might have. I I think yeah. it did if I yeah. remember right. But yeah. But anyways, day three pod play. Player gets up there, realizes it was not their ball. They just hit on the 18th hole. They just hit a wrong ball. Right. Unfortunately, in match play, there's no correcting that mistake. Right. Once you make the mistake, you kind of pass the point of yeah. The only thing no return. That, yeah. Um, it's interesting. A couple things come to mind on to me on this one. One is if we're both playing and we exchange balls, and let's say you hit my ball and I hit your ball, is it the player who hit the ball first who loses the hole, 
uh, I would assume. If you, if they, we both hit wrong balls if, without if a you, doubt. If you know, and who, we know for sure because I drove it fifty yards past you, or I don't know why you'd be confused, and I would never drive it fifty yards past you. But bear with me. If we know for a fact that one of the one of the two players played uh, the wrong ball first, they would be that hole. would be the player. Loss a hole is right there. Yep, that would be the player who loses the hole. However, if pl- two players discover that they have both hit a wrong ball but they cannot figure out which occurrence happened first. Maybe they were just completely opposite sides of the fairway. Mm-hmm. No, they don't know who or where it happened or where the balls got switched or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. Then there's no penalty to either player and they play yes. the, and they play the hole out with the ball switched. Right. Right. I remember that used to be a decision on that. Yep. Another thing that comes to mind on this one to me is in match play, there are, there are really, uh, three types of penalties, and I'm probably simplifying, overly simplifying this. Number one, a one-stroke penalty. That applies to both match and stroke play, right? Then you have the general penalty, which in match play is loss of hole. And then you have adjustment of hole penalties. And sometimes I think people confuse loss of hole with adjustment of hole. So let's say I've, I, you and I are playing a match, um, and I won't go to 18 because it'll make it too complicated, but I discover on the third hole that I've got 15 clubs. I don't lose the hole in that moment. You play hard. So if I discover that in the middle of the third hole, as opposed to hitting a wrong ball in the middle of the third hole, we might as well just go to the fourth tee because that hole is over. I still have something to play for with that 15th club in my bag. I need to declare it out of play. Otherwise, I get disqualified. Um, but my point is sometimes you got to – we'll call that a play hard situation because you still have a reason – um, that hole could still very much matter. And then once we finish that hole, then we make the adjustments and apply the penalty stroke. So I think sometimes that's confused when people say, oh, I've got 15 clubs, so I lose the hole. No, we're going to wait and see how this hole turns out, and then we're going to make the appropriate adjustments. That's, that's a penalty clause. It's very, conf- it, it's very difficult to explain to people. Um, I don't know why it's so difficult, but um, anyway, it just always struck me as drawing that contrast between those two situations. It's also the only adjustment penalty still left. That's it. Too many clubs. Yeah, it used to be. There's, yeah, that's well, the only, the only one other left. one. The other one was one ball, the one ball rule. Um, there's that still left. Where if I play as, is that an adjustment? Two caddies. Those are the others that um, having Two. more than one caddy. That one, well, having more than one caddy is just general penalty for every hole. Yeah. It's occurred on. And un- unlike having 15 or more than 14 clubs in your bag, which is limited to two holes. Having more than one caddy is not limited, unfortunately. So you could have a situation where you have a 36-stroke penalty. Yeah, that would be tough. That's like like putting the total of the front nine in the ninth box, 36 on on hole number nine, and you have to live with it. (laughs) Yeah, it's possible. Okay, that's a good one. What else? So next one, uh, Colorado Open. Kind of going. We're kind of halfway through the season here at this point. Colorado Open. I was thinking the Colorado Open is kind of the the top of the crescendo. That's like the very mm-hmm. middle of the season. I know it's not really true because we have so much going on in September and October, but it feels like it's the middle of the season. But yeah, it's yeah. well easy uh, for however, me to say. Remember, I'm in the office. However, You're out there ready to start. However you look at it. <laughs> so Colorado Open, uh, it was so this year marked the return to walking mm-hmm. in the Colorado Open. So. Keep in mind, model local rule G6 is in effect for this championship, prohibition of motorized transportation. Mm-hmm. However, we do in the Colorado Open have some carve-outs with 
model local rule G6 that where we're there, there's a couple situations where if a player uses motorized transportation, the committee is going to allow that. Mm-hmm. So good example would be we, we have a shuttle between holes nine green and 10 T it's mm-hmm. a longer walk and there's a shuttle available. So if a player uses that transportation between those two spots, the committee is going to say it's okay. There's no breach of that model local rule mm-hmm. for using motorized transportation in that scenario. Uh, another and then another part of that model local rule is anytime a player is operating under stroke and distance, they can get a ride back to mm-hmm. where they have already been. Mm-hmm. So that's another little carve out with that model local rule. Any other situation, it would have to be left up to the committee to decide if that would have been a approved mm-hmm. little mode of transportation there. Anyways, so round two, we have a player who alerts us on the, it's like nine going, when they're making their turn, whatever turn they were making, 18 mm-hmm. to one, nine to 10, whatever they were doing. And they, were, they said that, hey, we have a question about a caddy a couple of holes ago. Mm-hmm. I guess this caddy was having some, you know, maybe getting tired, leg was hurting, ankle was hurting, whatever the case was. Mm-hmm. Wanted to give his ankle a break for a hole. Decides to hop on a cart with a spectator. And right up that hole, player's going to hoof their own bag from tee to green. And then, you know, caddy gets the ride from the tee to the green, hops out, resumes his caddy duties from there. Okay. And Seems pretty innocent to me. Okay, guys, his well, ankle hurt. Come on. He's not, he's not, it's not him. It's he's, he's caddying. Just giving the caddy a little, a little rest. How does, that, how does the player benefit from that? As is always the case, it's the... The rules aren't the complicated part of this. It's the facts that are complicated. <laughs> so we need, to do, we need to get some more information from this player. So the first question was, uh, how, wh- where did this occur? Sound like it occurred from the T of, let's just call it hole seven. Mm-hmm. For, I don't remember what hole it was on. Let's call mm-hmm. it hole seven. Hopped in the car at the T at hole seven and went back to carrying the bag after the completion of hole seven. Okay, okay. well, let's... Okay, let's get some more information. Did you did your did he stop being your caddy during the play at hole seven? Well, you know, he gave me, you know, we talked through a shot out in the fairway for my second shot, and you know, he said, you know, you want let's take this line here. You know, you got let's hit this club. No, that doesn't sound like he ceased his caddy duties for that hole. It sounds like he was still acting as your caddy for the play of hole seven. Mm-hmm. Okay, what happened next? You know, okay, well, we hit our second shot. He got back in the cart, got his ride up to the green. I hoofed my bag up to the green. And when he got to the green, you know, we mm-hmm. talking through it, you know, looking at our putt, getting our read. Cleaning my golf ball. And then after that, from hole seven to hole eight, you know, he got the bag and we resumed what we were doing for the previous six holes. Okay, well, it sounds like you may, we may have a, probably you have a breach here of our model local rule, you know, or anytime that a caddy is acting in certain ways, that's going to be treated as if the player acted in that way as well, or took that mm-hmm. action for the player. And it sounds like your caddy used motorized transportation in a situation where we probably would not have permitted him to do that. Right. So uh, as I was talking to this player, it sounds like kind of told him that exact same thing. So this is, appears to me as if you're going to have a two-stroke penalty on hole seven. 
that's the hole it took place on. We're going to add a two-stroke penalty to hole number seven. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you know, that's great, fine. Deal with that. At the end of the round, player comes in, looking at the leaderboard at the end of the day, and lo and behold, that player misses the cut by one stroke. Yeah. Ouch. That hurts. So yeah. It's probably, you know- it's probably a... And again, it's it goes back to just like you were alluding to. What what advantage did that player get by mm-hmm. his well, caddy I guess riding I, in a cart? For, I guess to kind of take a page out of your book, you could say I got some good news and some bad news. I got good news, bad news, and bad news. The bad news is you got two. The, the other bad news is you you missed the cut by one. But here's the good news: you didn't have a second caddy during play of that hole. You didn't have another friend carry the bag while your caddy rode in the cart. And both of them were helping you with reading putts. Then you have two caddies on that hole, and it would have been a four-stroke penalty, right? Um, it might. It, I think it still would be a two-stroke penalty in that scenario. I think you're going to get a quantity discount. Oh, really? In scenario. You're okay. going to get a 1.C34 discount. Okay. Yeah, I forget unless, about that. Unless there was a intervening event between the two things yeah. happening, okay. where we have either knowledge of the two breaches yeah. and then continuing on. Yeah. Or a stroke was made in between knowing of the two breaches. Okay, I didn't so, even think about that. Yeah. I, I think in that case, he's he would have got the, the, two, the, plus, two. the two plus two equals two. Okay. In that case. The other thing that comes to mind, and I do remember the player, and it's far enough removed now I can name the player, Matt Scovey, a very talented young player, played, I believe, in SMU. Same type of situation, uh, model local rule prohibiting automotive transportation realized on a hole that his rangefinder had been left behind. His father was caddying for him. And they, he said to a rules official, can you, and I think it was rules, maybe it was a marshal, but he can, can you run me back to hole four and whatever hole it was and pick and see if I can find the range, the rangefinder distance device. And he did. And we ended up penalizing the player because it wasn't authorized. It was not a rules official. I felt terrible about it, and it ended up costing Matt Scovey, the low amateur, um, medal for mm-hmm. the Colorado Open. So, again, that one was even harder to swallow because he was just, you know, it's, it wouldn't even, I mean, and he, and he was sort of, uh, you know, it actually hurt him because his caddy, maybe it helped him. Dads and dads are very rarely good caddies, but anyway. Um, See, in, in that scenario, and, and I'll, I'll argue that I think in that scenario, I think you could argue that that might be something the committee should waive authorize. or, or authorize yeah. well, solely because, and the only reason I say this is because solely because when you have that model local rule in place, G6 for mm-hmm. prohibiting motorized transportation, when you have that model local rule in place, you're essentially applying to your competition that walking is an integral part of your competition, mm-hmm. right? You, you must walk the golf course. Mm-hmm. And, and in that scenario where a player or a caddy is going back because they forgot something or whatever the case is, they're going backwards. Mm-hmm. I could argue that they've already covered that distance walking. Yeah. They've already walked that distance yeah. in that portion of the golf course. Right. So because they've already walked it, I think there's an argument that could be made. No, I think think that's sound, common sense um, thinking. I think that that, because again, what I like about that approach is it addresses why. Why do we have a walking only clause? Because it's part of the competition and you have to, you have to navigate the entire golf course on foot. So your answer there, while it's also player friendly, 
in a much easier, uh, frankly, it just feels, it feels pretty unfair, quite frankly. <laughs> it felt unfair at the time, and I don't know if the rules, and that was going back, you know, pre-2019, so I don't know if that, that model local rule has been adjusted, modified, or otherwise, but at the time, we felt like we didn't have any other choice, mm. which is always tough. Uh, but I believe me, if anybody in that discussion had seen a way out, we we would have clung to it, I think. So if Matt's listening, he's like, man, I wish Lewis Harry were around then. <laughs> okay, what do we got next? Coming down to later part of the year here, U.S. Amateur. Okay. We're, we're getting out of the CGA. The actual here. amateur, not the qualifier. The, the actual the big deal, the show. Okay. U.S. Amateur, Cherry Hills and Colorado Golf Club. Mm-hmm. This particular one comes from Stroke Play at Colorado Golf Club. So I was, um, this was day, this was day two of stroke play. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're getting down to the, the end here before we make the cut to match play. <clears throat> I was in the, if anyone's familiar with Colorado Golf Club, I was a front, mostly roving the front nine that day. So my typical loop that day was between um, five, six, seven, and eight. Okay. That was kind of my typical, I would kind of just rove in that area. Mm-hmm. just to bounce because we one we had a checkpoint at seven and that was a good place for me to get to if I needed to go time a group for yeah, pace of play for pace of play right and if there was a group that was coming off the checkpoint at three I could jump to five and pick that group up to get mm-hmm. them to the next checkpoint so it just gives you an idea of why I was in the area right so anyways I was at number eight just watching groups I had nothing there's nothing really going on this was mid mid morning so there was nothing too crazy going on on the golf course yet um group comes to eight one of the players in the group everyone else tried to drive the green at eight short uphill par four Mm -hmm. one of the the players lays back has a wedge in his hand Um, ends up flying the green with a wedge and then you know as i as they get up there i see them call me up to the green it looks like they have a question so if you're familiar with eight at Colorado Golf Club, there's it's kind of a two-tiered green. There's a back shelf in the back left corner, but then there's a bunker back right of the green. Where was the hole that day? I'm just... Back middle right. Oh, so they didn't put it on that back left. No, tier. we okay. we opted not to use the shelf just solely yeah. for pace of play, right? For, okay. Especially just in, in the stroke play rounds. Yeah. But anyways, back right of the green, there's a bunker. So player, and they're over by the bunker. I'm like, okay, this it looks like this is probably gonna be something in the bunker or mm-hmm. you know, whatever the case is. So I get up there and the players say, Oh, I have a question about an embedded ball. Mm. So, well, now now my mind starts jogging a little bit. Is this is gonna be an embedded ball in the face of the bunker, is this gonna be embedded in sand? You know, mm-hmm. Let, let's take a look at this embedded ball. So we look at it and Immediately, it's it's very distinguishable about where the edge of the bunker is, mm-hmm. where the, the the edge of the prepared area of sand starts and stops with this mm-hmm. bunker. It's very very clear. Yeah, and that player's ball is just outside of that prepared edge, not in the bunker. So his ball is in the general area. However, it's embedded in sand. Mm-hmm. So before you get back to the grass in this scenario, in this case, there's just some very, very, very patchy sand mm-hmm. that's outside that area of prepared sand. Which was, this, was the sand the ball was embedded in, in the general area, sand that had been deposited there by people playing out of the 
or is it sort of the nature of the soil? In it's that just, it, it's, I think it's just the nature. I, that's more of it's, a curiosity question. It's neither here nor there, I guess. But I think it's a little bit yeah. of both. I think it's yeah. some of the soil from just the ground in general. And I think it's just sand that's yeah. come out of the bunker and yeah. spilled on top. But regardless, it's not. It was mm-hmm. pretty clear that this ball was in the general area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, I kind of started explaining to him, one, your ball is not in the bunker. We're in the general area right now. This is, we can kind of clearly see this is our, our bunker starts and stops. So the player's like, okay, I get that. And now I go into the explanation of why this player is not going to get relief for an embedded ball. Mm-hmm. So the way that the way in the embedded ball rule operates is that typically anywhere in the general area, a player is going to get relief if their ball meets the definition of being embedded. Mm-hmm. So there's two, we have two exceptions to that rule. The first exception is that if their ball's embedded but it's embedded in an area where the stroke would be unreasonable. Mm-hmm. If you know, regardless of the embedded nature, or not mm-hmm. we're, we're not going to give you relief. Right. We're not going to bail you out of jail from a bad situation. Right, and that same principle applies in other rules as well. Correct. Yeah. It applies in immovable obstructions, mm-hmm. unplayable, know, any abnormal course conditions. Mm-hmm. It, that's where it impl- applies. I shouldn't say. Yeah. Okay. So, so I told him, I was like, well, so that's the first ex- exception to this rule really had nothing to do with the situation. I was just mm-hmm. going through the education with this player. So the second exception is we're not going to give relief for balls embedded in sand that is in an area not cut to fairway high or less. Mm-hmm. So that where this really comes into play, and I think it's the picture they actually use in uh, a lot of the USJ's rules education for this topic is they use a picture from Pinehurst number two. Mm-hmm. And if anyone knows Pinehurst number two, you know, sandy areas all over the golf course that are just off the fairway with, you know, wispy grass in the sandy areas. <clears throat> and these are areas where the, the sand or the, the grass surrounding these areas is clearly not cut to a fairway height. And we're not going to give you relief from that sandy areas for an embedded ball because, you know, this is, your ball is probably not in a good spot to right. with, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what kind of what we had here. The, the surrounding part of this bunker was rough, you know, long of the green, the player would have been in rough had a bunker not been there mm-hmm. and the ball is embedded in sand in the general area. So we, we meet those two pieces of that puzzle for that exception to an, the embedded ball rule. So, so no relief for you, no relief, but I did tell the player, you know, he's, since you're in the general area, you're free to ground your club mm-hmm. and you know, you're just, it's just like you were in the rough. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, however you're going to play the shot, even though you're in sand, Go for it. You can ground your club and you can... You know, first of all, on that very point, um, the for those of us that are rules geeks, the famous book by Richard Tufts, The Principles Behind the Rules of Golf, there's a, and I this stood out to me when I read the book for the first time, that he makes the statement that in this exact situation, it is just as much of a penalty to ground your club in, the, in the, what he would have said it through the green in, this, in a ball where a ball is lying in sand as it is to do it in a bunker. In other words, the principle is more important than the letter of the law. The principle is, why can't you ground your club in sand? What's the reason? Well, the reason is you're going to improve the lie. You're going to alter the lie. Sand is very, it's going to change it as opposed to grass, which is going to spring right back. It doesn't change the principle of playing the balls that lies, of course, as you find it. And that really stuck with me. I don't think what you told the player is consistent with that, which is, you're correct, by the way, you can ground your club. 
And I think, because my question, if you really wanted to put a microscope on that situation, when he puts that club behind the ball, has he gained an advantage? Has he altered the lie of the ball in any way, shape, or form? And again, that's debatable. But the same would be said for people who ground their club very lightly in a bunker. Are they really, as a practical matter, by the time they're done playing the stroke, they're going to eradicate all that sand around the ball, that little indentation made by the sole of that sand wedge is going to have no bearing whatsoever mm. on the actual playing of the stroke. You know, during the modernization in 2019, there was some discussion about eliminating the grounding of a club uh, or just not allowing you to ground clubs in bunkers and to take practice strokes. And the reason that was decided not to be a good idea, the practice strokes would have ended up with even more sand deposited on what a mess. But it also, I think, concluded rightly that you're really altering that principle playing the balls that lies. So that's probably the main point is that I'll ask you, why can't I, why is it that I can't get relief from a ball embedded in a sandy area in the general area that's not closely mown? What, what's the reason? Well, I mean, other than just that's because that's the way the rule is written. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. the primary reason, but yeah. And I, I don't know if I have a really great answer for this. Yeah. I think it's just one of those things where it's, I guess it's just because it's a, something that's just completely different mm-hmm. than being embedded elsewhere in the general area. And it's, I, sand, mean, I think, it's, I think it, elsewhere in the general area, you have some consistencies, whether it's fairway rough. Mm-hmm. I think you can find some consistencies elsewhere in the general area where the ball's embedded. I think just because, sand not in an area of closely being closely mown i think that's just such an outlier that we're just yeah. we're just going to throw it out but again courses like you mentioned piners number 2 that that condition is so pervasive everywhere every time a ball lands in that area it's going to embed as opposed to most golf courses where it's very rare that a ball is going to embed so you're going to be giving embedded ball relief all day long right and you're effectively letting players tee up the ball every time they hit a really wild shot because of the sandiness of the soil. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure it's been thought out well. Okay. Sure. So we have, uh, we like, like to keep these to about 40 minutes. So we're running up. What's our, I think you have one more. There's one more finishing off the year. And this one, will, this one's a short one. So we'll, we'll make our, okay. our, our time here, but it's a short one. End of the year, CGA Mid-Am up in Steamboat and Haymaker. Mm-hmm. Great golf course. Um, Thank you, Haymaker. Thank you to Haymaker for hosting us this year. Thank you to all of our member clubs who were so graciously opened their doors to us so we can continue to conduct Absolutely. state championships. So, but a couple, uh, I actually had two of the same situation, back-to-back days, two different players. So okay. Read into that what you will. But uh, simple ball search, you know, player begins searching for their ball. Tick, 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 tick. Time's going by. One minute, two minutes, two and a half minutes. Three minutes. Ball's not found. Wait, five seconds later, hey, I got a ball over here. Or, hey, I got my ball now. Looks like it was on the other side of this hill. Well, unfortunately, the time doesn't read three minutes and zero, 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 one seconds. Mm -hmm. The three minutes is a hard and fast number, and that ball has now changed statuses. It's no longer the ball in play. It's now a wrong ball. So um, it's... There's, I think, some misunderstanding about, and not so much, I guess, a misunderstanding from players' ends, but it's a, I I think players really 
have a hard time wrapping around that that three minutes is three minutes and zero 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 right. zero zero to infinity seconds. <laughs> That's where the yeah, and you know there's some. I don't know. It, I, I just think that players think there's some yeah, it's some, kind of some leeway. Well, there. I just I think common sense is, you know, are you really late when you walk into a room? 20 seconds after the meeting started, yeah, you know, it's close enough. So I just think it's part of the casualness of the way we treat time. Um, and you know, this is a soapbox of mine. Um, first of all, as a rules official, I make it a, a practice to always announce one minute. We got 30 seconds, and then I count down as loud as I can. You know, we got to count down from 10. So, and as soon as I get to zero, I say, ball's lost. And people still, still look, they don't just immediately abandon. Yeah. They, every time I'm like, and I usually have to say, guys, the ball's lost to really make it a point. Cause I don't want that ball to be found now. I really don't. Cause now you're in exactly the situation you're in. You're going to have to be the bad guy that says, sorry, time's up. Yep. So the more clear you can make it, the time is being watched and monitored and counted, the better you're going to be. If that exact thing happens. The other thing is soapbox, soapbox warning. Nobody times ball searches except for rules officials. That's the only type, the only person you'll ever see timing a ball search is a rules official. So when I've played in tournaments, and I'm not saying this because I'm holier to be holier than thou, it just, it just, you know, it's because I'm such a vigilant about pace of play. The reason we changed five to three was for pace of play. So what good does it do us if nobody's timing it? You, you know, so that's just always been uh, annoying. And I wish we could do some things with, um, the rules app, even just not even the rules app doesn't get looked at, but on when you're using a live scoring event and you have an app to enter scores, put a timer on there. Yeah. So it's right there in front of you. So, well, speaking of timing, I think we went a minute over. We lost that ball a minute ago. <laughs> great year. Great year. Thank you, Lewis, for all the work. You, Kate, Brent, the entire rules and comps team. You guys work your butts off. Um, all because you love the game, and, and it's really important. The CJ was founded in 1915, and we're still continuing that tradition. So without you doing it, we wouldn't have much fun. And we didn't have rules. We wouldn't be able to crowd a champion with any confidence we got the right person. Right? That's right. All right. Until next month. We'll see you then. See you then.